I'm Pamela Pierce, Medic, and I'd like to welcome you to the third in our series on American Literary Magazine. Before I turn the program over to Clayton Esselman and Sulphur, I'd like to tell you that ask you not to smoke at all in this room and invite you to a reception which follows. Okay?
great earth mother lived in her angry Cuban body, and she exercised this mother as an essential part of her appetite. Her hunger imbued woman shape into the mute anonymity of the earth's masculinized crust. She dug under a salon canopy. She dug and she dug with the heel of her bowl as she carved and set smoking the silhouetted grandeur of buried feminine ancientness. Her shovel set Locell is still Willendorf, Batiste, Kummel, Kabir, Earth and Gunpowder, Hard Clay Bed. Diana of Ephesus is exposed pale. The Earth is
body gives of egg from whose vagina pink fumes burnt offering on a roaded ground. Vine and pod her arms lifted on doom a green cubic tangle. Feminine form a burned out stockade on a wasteland. Flat mud arms lifted quickly lift too low the delicious word death. The crucified bursting in the fireworks day of the dead. Green granite moss clustered breast highest the landscape reverence is all the other force. Yellow grass surrounded by green goddess presence Juno in the myriad blades. Literate as sentinel walking over the mushroom clustered bobby phallus of the dark. Violet star remains as mother and child. Her body a scroll work of serpent eggs. Pulled open earth walls of the interior stars More anonymous than the Andrew Falls, 
rubble mother with her rubble spout press between rubble thighs. The elephant woman afloat like an arrowhead in the sky with a hard-on rammed up through my neck and through my head with my radish fetus gripped by the vagina my torso is with my staring eyeball at eyeball. Hush! Conorox me! Somos aún vivimos! In spite of everything, we still exist with all our potential for regeneration and growth. Lots of seats on the side here if you want to come up. I take to be our whole civilization. 
trying to see the power relations of gender, the social construction of gender difference, the place of representation and cultural product in the continual refabrication of gender and the possible moments of rupture and critique. Many of the people associated with sulfur take implicit metaphors of the accumulation and the dig, a probing of a metaphorically archaeological site for the cultural remains, a proposing of catalogs and analyses of our connectedness to these sites, no matter how apparently foreign. Such would be Weinberger's essays. The metaphor of field notes from James Clifford's astonishing presentation of Michel Larit suggests that we are anthropologists of ourselves and of our tribe among other tribes. This work of symposium is in many unexpected, untendentious ways a political probe of our already existent creolization. We are already affected by multicultural crossings far beyond the necessary but contained stage of the politics of ethnic and gender identity. We are all Caribbeans now, says James Clifford in a statement in the Laris issue. Sulfur makes grids of heterogeneity to rupture monoculture. By virtue of its obdurate binaries of structure which replicate social power, Gender is interestingly not sus totally susceptible to the political metaphor of multiplicities in creolization. Though gender positions called masculine and feminine are vested with various transvestite claims of position and playfulness. Yet gender reminds us of irreducible factors of power as a factor of who we are here now and each person's historical specificity within society and culture. Tracing the intricacy of those relations, creolization, ruptured binaries, and our historical moment, I take to gloss the whole art, the subtitle of this forthright journal. The poem that I would like to read is a long poem that actually did not appear in Sulphur, but I chose it as representative of my concerns with gender. It appears in um, my, my book called Tabula Rosa. In the, in the piece, there is a, a section that concerns a diorama by Marcel Duchamp, which is housed in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Um, and it is that diorama, which I consider at some length in an article that did appear in Sulphur, called Sub Rosa, double R, homage to Rose de la Vie. This poem is one of my drafts. Draft number two, she. The white one turns red, they say, then peach to white, grass rich the edgefold space. Slices of porcupine deep underground and et that red grained fat. I be good girl with my magic markers. Marks hands up red, makes henna dark touch. Taboo thy ruses, moose and roses. Terracotta, ochre smear of Provence, shadowy stains 
stairs, those are double words. Ask for danger. Say, I want that danger. Who has how images rise, rinse, and erase? How can the rose speak? And how much can you, in fact, stand that lobotomized memory you have been washed up into? Do you know? Dear name, I mortar for departure's sake further reaches the thin voice of the thin space. Red, red, the rushes rise down, down by the salt tide veil that love depicted as against itself. Small, happy, guillotined family unit, petal lashed to petal. Families set like junket in Milky Room's schematic valleys. V-shape of the young runnel, rennet's sweet white jellies over cascades of russet granite. Lightly risen of a plastic pink, too close, too bare, though luminous food one could imagine there, the moon, when next I spy, retracts, a dime-sized toy-tied dish my moony quest too dumb to ask a better, bitter question. Still, such catheter stuck there into my any fleck is profligate. Of suggestive jests, twists, joists, of wax rib stuffed by a potential crime, do you read her as mother, woman, one-armed bandit, angel, badger, with a lamp? Beam my way, be me tinkling light, be me now. Oh, be thou me, sinuous one. The piece, it's fleshy, picture perfect, peachy, wax torqued up to fill, fool, this unrelinquished peephole. Luminosities, enormities of key-shaped air in which she flocks, twisted in brush, sign curves verbatim. A pubis elusive, the eye penises through the key lock. The eye is complicit and so is hunger, nausea, for I am afraid to hold, hurl, hurt it too much, not speak of hold me. I am your danger. I am your anger, ranger. I am your angel, dudgeon. Red-orange with red veining, shading, raised rib of same, color runs into large gold throat, suppressed heart, green. Pale, pale peach that by evening has a flush of pink. There is a pink rib, goes deep, up to the hilt. Rose heart bound between me, that, heavy-eyed, light-gazing. Daylilies open and drop, opal nenuphars of tears. I am your angle, stranger. Each word a cryptogram, never too much, in narrow nas, in ride, rid, in courage, car, and rage, in flax, flocks, hemp, feather, hook, garland, pull, 
a cryptic outline of something, word shoal, staunched blood, food stood at the edge of well-beloved veins, looking cockeyed at all their deep, at all their deep blue writing. Shadow under word lopes through stands of wet papyrus, microclimates for this ploy versus that. Rain warms here, wind twists there, one family eats well, another eats each other. House of the soul is filled with little things, clay vessels slipped and glazed, all smallness, green leaf offering, sweaty flour, baby loaf, small as half an envelope which wads up tight the poem's patchouli. In Shire's shrines, you're going to have something about aging teeth. You're going to have left something half-chewed in front of that house. Food on the plate of the moon, né sur l'assiette de la lune, that hard to write, the mother, to get that empty for that full mouth, her, she, it's mouth, her, she, he or she, sorry, and mouth, her, A borer, a beetle, an eater. Who will evaluate hunger? Bowel, bowl, daughter. Whosoever siphons undigested words requires a wide tube. Dabbles the blankie down, din do throw, foo foo new. Dulls the arrow of eros, the error of arrows. Each little spoil and spill all during, pieces fly apart, splatting crumb bits there and there. Feed and wipe. Woo-woo, petunia pie. Hard to get the fail of it. Large, small specks each naming. Yellow surface, green bites. Red elbow kicks an orange tangerine. The time inside makes tracks. Seems a small room lurches into the foreground anger. Throwing some dash, power swirls up against me rock. Pick it up, mommy, me need it. A push, a touch, a putch, pull, a flailing kick, a spool for her who is and makes thread. I, the she that makes her, her, the she that makes me, she. Practicing ferocity on your, her, Self, you become the mother, the monster, certainly a change, a chain. Is this foaling, failing, finding the mother? Top half poison, ivy, next half scritchings, the garden red, yellow light from above, blue light swells from earth, bruising a frame, digging, I sit on a flower. Counting the steps of bright shadow, the pure pause paces, clusters of ripe tones making up loud and then wispy forces across one singular place, saying no to itself with meditative privation, yet unfixed, so spun out of or of being or seeing, which is not, but as it starts, starts a little rivulet sound and voice, another it fuses, pivots, a sigh and sign, desires design, blue transparencies rich for thirst. Listen. To listen is to drink. 
How can there be another cry? Whom? One of another? Who? Who cries? Who listens? Hear, hear the liquid light swirl and merge with drinking calls, a sigh, a moan from what is waiting, sweet, sweet, sweet tease, another cry, a honey voice, another one. All told, a voluminous backdrop. The night, four, three, two, exactly, silver hush behind, curdling a shaggy, hurt fleet. Eat that moon's sweet light. Bird's blood is brown. Her words, some said, they're just a band-aid on a mummy. Wad reams of rims into mache, my eyes chewing. She screams unassimilable first dream. Hold her unutterable and press another choir of girl bound in, bond in for pink. Draw drafts of milk. These words are milk. The point of this is drink. I see this argument as a healthy sign because it suggests that things haven't settled. And I first encountered this argument or signs of this liveliness in the late 60s in the pages of Caterpillar, which, was, which ran for 20 issues and was edited by Clayton Eshelman. I think the real difference between sulfur and Caterpillar is that sulfur is more inclusive that Caterpillar was more narrow. Um, and that I think the one sign of the liveliness of Sulphur Magazine is that it has 13 people writing for it, that they're all distinct from each other, and that they don't, they don't agree on all the issues, and that somehow the magazine doesn't subsume them. And in fact, it allows them to remain distinct. And I think that's the reason I felt strong about my association with the magazine and strong about the people writing for it. Okay. I'm gonna read I'm gonna read three short pieces, one which appeared in Sulphur called Genghis Chan Private Eye. I was floating through a cross-section with my dusty wine glass when she entered a shivering bundle of shredded starlight. You don't need words to tell a story 
a gesture will do. These days we're all parasites looking for a body to cling to. I'm nothing more than riffraff splendor drifting past the runway. I always keep a supply of lamprey lipstick around, just in case. She laughed, a slashed melody of small shrugs. It had been raining in her left eye. She began, a cloud or story broken in two, maybe four places, wooden eyelids and a scarf of human hair. She paused. I offer you dervish bleakness and glistening sediment. It was late and we were getting jammed in deep. I was on the other side staring at the snow-covered moon pasted above the park. A foul lump started making promises in my voice. This is called Cascade. We were sitting outside the factory of last resorts, drinking tea and talking around the carved feathers tumbling into your bagged body its quivering spokes baboon brilliant in the faded spray. It was copper twilight, hushed tunnel when one good tremble deserves a star. I wish the robots zipping us into the lower forehead's mirror burned away the banjo players, their useless hands. I wish their slender vapors had lodged in our discolored necks, easing the thicket of clamps. I wish I had never seen the photographs of the women with no hair, children assembled in front of the fountain, grackles and gold teeth. Another wrinkled citizen, I have, to, I have come to tell you the sadness machine is on the fritz again. This is called La Brea. Dozens of blue relics slip from the envelopes rise and turn toward the sooty pink graveyard of Sola Automaton. Slate Sunday evening, deserted malls, tar bubbling in the fissures spreading beneath their brain. The refurbished lizard motif, its slanting rows of amber cadaverous eyes, begins blinking above the parking garage. His skin a decrepit compendium to the words he copies down. City. Egyptian birds and Indonesian bandanas, ice cream truck melting in the first moments, its faded tablecloth. The wind lifted the hats from the dead geniuses, their cold wax frames, and stored them on the upper shelves. I keep a candle near your face so I might memorize the closet in which you alone are standing. A cab crashes into a tree growing beneath the sky, its powdery limits. A day an apple speaks the doctor away, its doors closed to the fires. Shaped clay twisting in the sparks of water drifting off the screen. Three turtles mingle in the gray azaleas. Some mechanical problems fly ahead. Cobalt dissipated layers. Birds nest in the trunks of identified cars. How to dissect this alternate, alternate anatomy, its wet skeleton writhing in the streets. Another fountain of farm clouds dances on knives and stalks, velvet hunger laughing back. They painted lips on the back of their hands while watching guidebooks smoldering in barrels. Someone crossed out the physics of her head, 
twilight camera residue injected into thick oblong occurrences. A thorn of animals discusses the pains they have had to endure. After placing the money on her tongue, he untied his shoes, the one with the pension and the one with the broken arm. Thank you. relationship with Clayton and Sulphur is unique and wonderful in the U.S. 
it would, be, it would uh, perhaps be routine elsewhere. We may disagree on the opinions expressed. He may make valuable suggestions of structural changes, but basically he lets me fail or succeed with my own words. I can't imagine what I'd do without sulfur or the tremendous ego boost of Clayton's invariable comment on each new manuscript I send him. It's okay, but not as good as the last one. Uh, most of my essays are, are far too long to read tonight, and the shortest suitable one I could find is perhaps closer to journalism than some of the others. It is, in fact, an obituary. Uh, the obituary has always struck me as one of the most neglected genres and an interesting technical problem. Uh, seriously. <laughs> uh, uh, how, in a few pages, does one describe, draw a literal conclusion to a life? and in this case, a life where few of the usual details are known. Being a writer of prose, I can sit while I read. <laughs> <laughs> James Jesus Angleton, 1917 to 1987. On his strange mission to America in 1939 to persuade Roosevelt not to enter the European war, Ezra Pound took time from his meetings with low-level bureaucrats and high-level avant-gardists to travel to New Haven to visit a Yale student named Jim Angleton. Angleton, still an undergraduate, was an energetic literateur. He had visited Pound in Rapallo and shared his enthusiasm for Mussolini. He was chummy with Cummings, met Marianne Moore, lunched with Thomas Mann, and had brought in the ambiguous William Empson to lecture. He helped James Agee with the manuscript of Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Now, with his roommate Reed Whittemore, he was editing a poetry magazine called Furioso. Pound's introductory textbook had appeared in the first number, and the poet was as eager as ever to tell the young editors whom to publish. Details of that encounter are not known. The two major Pound biographies grant the incident only one nearly identical sentence each. After four issues, Furioso suspended publication to be resumed after the war with Whittemore as sole editor. Angleton was published only once in the Yale Literary Magazine, a bad poem with a prophetic title, The Immaculate Conversion. In the middle of the war, Angleton was converted turned, he would say, by his English professor, Norman Holmes Pearson, from poetry to its twin, espionage. Pearson, a Boston aristocrat and a diminutive cripple, is now remembered for his writings on 19th century American literature, sent to London to become the head of X2 of the OSS. There he learned the British double-cross system of psychologically coercing captured enemy agents into working for one's own side. Pearson's counterpart and nemesis at the British MI6 was Kim Philby. His code name was Puritan. In espionage literature, he is called the father of American counterintelligence. Angleton turned out to be Pearson's greatest find. Their relationship during the war was close father, son, or master disciple. After work at the London OSS office, Angleton traveled in the Pearson circle, Eliot, the Sitwells, Benjamin Britten, Graham Greene, E.M. Foster, Ralph Vaughan Williams, Norman Douglas, Elizabeth Bowen, 
Compton Mackenzie. He was a frequent guest at H.D. and Breyer's flat. The OSS office itself was no less literary. Angle had, in turn, recruited two close friends, Edward Weissmiller, the Yale Younger Poet of 1936, and Richard Elman, the future Joyce Scholar. Fellow agents included, along with super spook William Casey, Donald Gallup, the future Pound bibliographer, and Louis Martz, the Milton scholar who would later edit H.D.'s collected poems. Angleton's secretary was H.D.'s daughter, Perdita. H.D. seems to have been surrounded by spies. It is curious that Breyer was apparently the only outside person to know Pearson's code name. After the war, Pearson returned to Yale, where he continued to recruit students for the newly formed CIA. He served on the board of advisors to Pound Square Dollar Books, which folded after its publishers, Casper and Horton, went to jail for instigating segregationist riots. In 1975, on a tour of the Far East, Norman Holmes Pearson fell ill in Seoul and died soon after. Mrs. Pearson believed that he had been poisoned by North Koreans, proof that he was still working for the company. Angleton, when he surfaced in public in the the, quote, ultra-top-secret Deep Snow Unit. He had files on two million Americans, had directed an operation that infiltrated the U.S. Postal Service and opened and photographed 200,000 personal letters, believed that Lee Harvey Oswald and Henry Kissinger were KGB spies, and that the Black Panthers were a North Korean front operation. He had been Kim Philby's best friend, for 20 years after the defection of Philby's partners, Burgess and McLean, Philby and Angleton were locked in a deep game of double and double-double crossing, a wilderness of mirrors, Angleton called it, quoting Eliot, as Angleton decimated the ranks of the CIA in search of double agents, the moles. Angleton's boss, Alan Dulles, was kept uninformed, and Mrs. Angleton, after 31 years of marriage, had never known her husband's position. Angleton, who kept reading poetry all his life, claimed in later years that he had always tried to recruit agents from the Yale English Department. Uh, yeah, it's curious about the Paul the Man affair, like, you know, how they didn't do it anyway, but that, that occurred after the, uh, after this was written. <laughs> I mean, that they didn't know seems like a joke, but anyway. Uh, he, he believed that those trained in the new criticism with its seven types of ambiguity were particularly suited to the interpretation of intelligence data. <laughs> Consider, after all, the way a spy's message may be read. One, it is written by a loyal agent and its information is accurate. Two, it is written by a loyal agent, but its information is only partially accurate. Three, it is written by a loyal agent, but its information is entirely inaccurate. Four, it is written by a double agent, and its information is completely false. Five, it is written by a double agent, but its information is partially true so that the false parts will be believed. Six, it is written by a double agent, but its information is entirely true so that the allegiance of the agent will not be discovered. Moreover, the message is written in code and liable to the vagaries of translation. 
and it is written in a highly condensed language whose meanings can offer varying interpretations. Like a poem, the message is only as good as its reader. Roosevelt refused to believe a report on the imminent invasion of Pearl Harbor. The FBI thought that the Pisan Cantos were the encoded communications of a spy. There's a book to be written on poetry and espionage. A spy must know where the best information is, collect it without being discovered, and safely transmit it. In antiquity, the bards and troubadours were perfect for the task. They were free to wander, they had access to the courts, and as poets, they relied on their powers of observation to compose and their memories to recite. The first literary spy is the creation of such a bard, Odysseus, who in Book Four, The Odyssey, disguises himself as a beggar to gather intelligence in a Trojan city. Chaucer was a spy on the continent for John of Gaunt. Marlowe was recruited by Sir Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's great spy master and Sir Philip Sidney's father-in-law, to inform on English students who were enjoying Catholic hospitality in Reims. And later, he was murdered by Walsingham's men because of his involvement with Sir Walter Raleigh, another spy, in a plot to, dispose, to depose the queen, a murder that was neatly staged to look like a barroom brawl. Wordsworth was a spy in France, Basil Bunting a spy in Persia. Whitaker Chambers started out as an objectivist poet. Poetry arose as the voice of sacred power, the formula, the mantra, the oracle, the prayer, rhythmical condensed speech. Because of taboo, it was a voice that spoke in metaphors, the only way to express the inexpressible. Even as it lost its sacred function, the power continued in the poem. Poetry, said Dickinson, takes the top of your head off. That split between the power of the poem and the powerlessness of the poet in society has led poets into lives quite similar to the lives of spies. Poets have believed that they are the unacknowledged legislators, which in its way is another name for the secret police. They have been attracted to secret societies from the Elizabethan School of Knights, whose members included Raleigh, Spencer, Chapman, and Marlowe, as well as Thomas Harriet and the alchemist Walter Warner, to Yeats's Golden Dawn. They have preferred to publish anonymously or under pseudonyms, they are, like Milton writing his elegy before he had a suitable corpse, masters at the counterfeiting of emotion. They band together into groups and movements that, like Angleton's CIA, become obsessed with betrayals from within. They encode private messages and secret strengths into their poems, like Zukovsky embedding the formula for a conic section into the letters N and R in A9. They believe they are serving great powers, Stalin, Mussolini, the revolution, the church. They walk like Baudelaire, Lorca, Reznikov, invisibly through the city, watching and listening. Writes Mina Loy, to maintain my incognito, the hazard I chose was poet. In its obituary, the New York Times reported that Angleton's favorite poets were Eliot and Cummings. In the past several years, I have been a correspondent for Sulphur Magazine. Correspondent from where? 
I like to think of myself as the correspondent from the outer reaches of language, because I think language, along with outer space, is the last wilderness, the last frontier, our collective inner space, as strange as the unexplored depths of the ocean, as wild as the word Emily Dickinson proclaimed was language's wildest, just the one syllable, no. Language is a wilderness that, unlike others, can never be conquered or exhausted, but it can be made to accommodate, in Robert von Halberg's word, to submit, assimilate, compromise, deny. In contrast, I correspond for a poetry of opposition. For opposition, even for the sake of opposition, is strong medicine in a society that confuses palatability for communication, packaging for style, tiny bites of message for meaning. In a world where national political discourse is a farce and journalism a parrot of PR releases and rehearsed banalities, whether it be the pseudo-interviews with Olympic stars or the emotional ghoulishness of close-up faces of grief, there is an absolute need for poetry. And this is a need that grows in direct proportion to its much-heralded denial, as in the cover story of last month's commentary, Who Killed Poetry? An article so silly that its only point seemed to be that it wished poetry could be killed, as if poetry was some kind of weirdly persistent mosquito that hovered around the author in the throes of composition. In the face of soullessness like this, there is a place for the sulfurous, the vitriolic, the excessive, if only to wake us up, show that someone out there is listening, that poetry makes a difference in our lives, a difference beyond the suburban consensus building that von Halberg applauds in his contemporary canon of mainstream anemia. Yet the sulfurous, in its passion, may also engender divisiveness. And indeed, divisiveness is an unfortunate but perhaps inevitable legacy of alternative traditions in American poetry. As long as most poets of value in our culture continue to feel, with justification, unrecognized and unappreciated, this legacy will be hard to reverse. Alternative institutions, as we have learned from the left, are not always sanctuary from the reductive, the dismissive, the self-righteous. They are not necessarily free from a nostalgia for past solutions, untransformed to account for the present moment, nor, for that matter, from wild-eyed oblivion to the obviousness of old and problematic solutions offered as revolutionary new ones. What is to be prized about sulfur is that, unlike many of its mainstream counterparts, it is committed to air these differences. Voices that are not necessarily understood or welcomed are nonetheless given a forum. The poet's life is one of quiet desperation, although sometimes it gets noisy. Everywhere undermined by apathy, suspicion, competitiveness, outside the welcome friendship of those similarly situated, it seems poetry itself has to be defended. Many days I feel like one of those 50 street vendors demonstrating multipurpose vegetable cutters. The flapping hands and jumping up and down may generate a small crowd because there remains interest, if not in the product, at least in the humiliation of trying to sell something few seem to want. 
I flipped through this week's Nation and noticed a letter to the editor by their own small press critic. He suggests that the clarity that the New York Post demands of its sports writers is a model that poets who wish to be political should emulate. Is it just my pessimism that makes me feel that this reflects an ever-deepening crisis in our culture, a contempt even in the alternate press's space for alternate presses, for intellectual and spiritual articulations not completely assimilated and determined by the dominant culture's discursive practices? Discursive practices marked by endless chronicles of winners and losers, organized violence, and performance measured by the clock? And why exactly are the four words, dominant cultures, discursive practices, any worse to somewhat of this persuasion than such approved formulations as major league batting practice? Perhaps poetry, like the wilderness, has to be denied as part of an effort to conquer it. For to admit that there is wilderness or poetry is to lose the battle to overcome it. Why do things except for money or sport or family? This is something that seems no longer obvious. And if you say civic, it still doesn't explain that the community for which you may wish to speak has few voters or consumers, or perhaps is only a figment of your imagination or a vision of a community that may sometime come to be. It still doesn't explain that the community for which you speak may be a people that have vanished or been expelled or vanquished. Our history is one of ghosts whose voices we can sometimes hear sighing in the lines more often than not denied the status of communication because they make too much sense, but sense of the wrong kind. Each of us is entitled to our taste and perhaps deserves it. There is no point disputing preferences if presented as such, but it is useful to contest arguments, whether in sulfur or elsewhere, that fundamentally distort the sources, motivations, and accomplishments, whether it be of the radical modernists of the 10s and 20s, the new American poets of the 50s or 60s, or poets today publishing in sulfur, or poets today publishing in sulfur, among other places, decrying the absence of meaning or decorum, the abandonment of coherence, sentiment, or emotion, the loss of the music of traditional verse forms, and other various and sundry excesses. Seventy-five years ago, it was the stance of many avant-garde movements to proclaim just these feats, partly to bug the squares, but these claims have grown tiresome over time and, in any case, never really fit the work in whose name they were spoken, since really what was rejected was not meaning or music or even literary tradition, but outworn or no longer viable ways of conceiving of them. It is the continued fate of the new to be misunderstood by some in exact proportion to the, to the intensified comprehensibility it provides to others. The poetry presented in Sulphur represents less a unified alternative poetics than a series of sometimes contentiously related tendencies or proclivities, and especially shared negations, concerted rejections of what I call in the William Carlos Williams piece, official verse culture. For truly, these projects and language are not restricted or exclusive. 
There is no limit to those who can or have or will participate in this work, which is open-ended and without prescriptions, not a matter of proper names, but of works, and perhaps not even a matter of works, but of how readers read them. Just now in North America, there is an intense density of poetic activity so that it becomes difficult to keep up with all the work that excites interest and involvement. The work about which I wish to correspond tends to be preoccupied with finding the possibilities for articulation of meanings that are too often denied or repressed by a multinational culture that we are, alway, that, that we are always being subjected to, that we are indeed subjects of, and which, moreover, can be understood as its nowhere explicated subject. Poetry which is political, not primarily in its subject matter or representation of political causes, however valuable that may be, but in the form and structure and style of the poems and in the attitude toward poetry. Against the onslaught of a pervasive and, and smugly facile insistence that there is no escape from the simulations of commodity culture so often intoned in the visual arts magazines, it becomes political to hold out for meaning. Not the meaning that is a prepackaged message of an authorized and syntactically normalized grammatic decorum, but an always active, probing consideration of meaning as social, corporeal, multidimensional, a meaning that cannot be fixed, that resists utilization, and that is acted out on the terrain of a page in perfect asymmetric counterpoint to the labors that simultaneously engender each day. I thought uh, for the poem to read, I would simply read a very recent work because I think of Sulphur as a place that presents uh, recent work, although this uh, poem makes reference to a poem of Michael Palmer's that appeared uh, fairly recently in Sulphur called Sun. But the name of this one is called Sun Sickness. Blame it on resembling, as if it would change so easily, rough up glares or trace avenues by fingertip. You skirt on top, afraid to sink in two, and why not falter, marched into elides, forked by definition or conscripted from declamation? The founding harbors faced it thus. Then alone on hooks, trying to get lost, the ground refusing way. There's no point you proceed with intermittent steps and when the starting line appears, it can't be said it's the same. No inanity suited better than this polled tack, nor too much light either, heaving like you've just been hit in the face by a wave, yet no particle cares that much. I'd wager you've had it by now, burn or defraud your comeuppance as some sort of serial madness pegged to the flap that won't mind its places. There was azure, agate, fool's dust, but I never got any, just this 
speculative bonfire. I'd give you credit for that, but credit never satisfied you. And after that, there's only bone or blood or sinew and not enough to share. Certain things are private or anyway demand privacy, but I'd be reluctant to say who. No more than you, I'm content to lay low, tank up on decompression, and sing a chord or two. Not possible to remember many more than that, or failing to note the calm calamity fall prey to remoter executions. I mean command from distant quarters. There is a choir here, and don't know whether to blow it out or blow it up. Less and less to hold on to, but more and more to do. Be done. If that doesn't stretch the point too far, going cold turkey or lukewarm tongue. Not my language, just a lot of luggage, but no use jettisoning, but no use jettisoning the fading with eau de cologne. Not my handle, just a lot of tags on bags of baggage that look none too familiar. Then everybody drops from sight and all the wrong things said repeat themselves like so many masquerades you can't pull yourself out of and screaming down the hall without any signs of cause. Pleading for hope when hope was just the problem. Or should I throw a pie in your face? Pronoun slips on banana. Michael writes of sun. But all I can think of is sun sickness, too much in the sun, never a daughter, as if God's light still shone on we who have shaded our eyes. A few phrases remain, but the drift is vanish. No way out and no way in, a straight call to blast a drift on stage for all to view, the cringe, the sigh, the curvilinear elide, the scholar transmitter, the, the scholar trance maker hangs from the end of a trope and asks to be cut down. An umbilical cord signifies no less. Yet despite, I can now see, or is it all a mistake? And does it splatter? The important thing is the sweep by which the specific is hampered on its way to the laundry, the only objective comment lifted from the interrogation, then fingered in this historical fantasy some have undertaken to get out of, and so our reviewer can state that his false assertions are absolutely true and patently true, even in the face of being absolutely false and patently misleading. Facts are a dime a dozen, but opinions are like pearls. Society sailed amid so many stuffed shirts. The road re-delivers the redaction. Yet form can contain almost nothing, just enough. And bursts onto the floor, waving and jumping up and down sleigh bells of an unanticipated foreclosure, chiming at a frequency beyond reach, yet driving to distraction all the same, which is to say, without goal and undecidable expectation, can't even say toward, 
and naming the passage time or placelessness, getting in bed with promise and waking up with make-believe. Fortunately impecunious, at least on a materials level, floorboard, window pane, ceiling fan, cold as a cow with a long tail going to confession, crazy as a one-legged chair at an ass-kicking contest, nervous as wet fog, silly as a bedbug in a brass bra, smelly as a white man on election day. I enters the canvas. Then what would you know the meaning of? Hard as honey, white as flint, loud as the snow, dumb as mud. There be another horizon, boots on bay, time left for every day. It's not as if it hasn't been said before or won't be said another time, but never quite the same, soft as midnight, clear as dead. With the radio, you always turn this sort of thing off, and now you're paying, playing for it, floating entirely inside the dump, unmaking proportion in small-mouthed widgets encapsulated astride phantom departures, slow and sullen, fast and nasty. Please do not turn page until completion of song, for which I languish in thousand lacerations entangled, demark waves, implosion of what is vapor, days stifling of cork and circles of music, sordid front mounted, enlarged trembling like specter of corpses adorned, absorbed, and the fissures elevate themselves and grunt, and the savor forces its effects like as to as and what to what remains, me one voice, me other is, an objection, haze is the subject, brought to a locus, an aberration, filter as creator, aspire to what is dejectedly broken, occasionally the inflection of meteoric and terminal vagueness. Everything marked, no need to fence, sopping hard and alike as a fiddle and a dive. A simple no that knows no answer. And if they say, cut off their hands, then he shall have his tongue cut out. But revenge is for cues and plates, tools and states, defiance for the rest who wait and are willing. For what you may learn is that by going down into the secrets of your own crimes, you descend into the secrets of all minds, minds, anyway, some other, worlds hourly changing, sparring with cause to an unknowable end, asking no less, demanding no more. So that's our program. Uh, we now will be happy to respond to anything that was simulated. Can I, would you ask us here to put the microphone?
Have we stunned you into insensibility? <laughs> Anybody here that Clayton has rejected? I'll tell you after, that's not, I mean, ask me after. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>